0: Hello friends, welcome to Beyond the News. It is Friday the 26th of May. Coming up on today's show we're going to be looking at Disney losing 4 million plus subscribers. Brits are dying in their tens of thousands, don't know why. A moment's silence for the death of Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse. And we're going to be listening to Senator Paul issue why everyone in... America should be afraid of their own government. Russell Brand's going to be talking about the coronation we had here in England and I'm finally going to get around to playing a decent-sized chunk of that Dr. Asim Maholtra talking to Joe Rogan about his uh, views on vaccines and why his views changed. So let's begin with, from the mirror here, it's reads, Brits are dying in their tens of thousands and we really don't have any idea why. Tens of thousands more Brits died than usual from May to December 2022, excluding Covid as the cause of death, raising serious questions as to why so many died, by Kieran Williams. Of course, this is uh, an absolute tragedy for all the people that have passed away and their families tens of thousands more Brits were dying than expected and experts aren't quite sure why that is from May to December last year there were 32,441 excess deaths in England and Wales excluding deaths from covid excess deaths are defined as the number of people who died from the five above the five year average worked out excluding 2020 due to low sorry due to how covid spiked death figures that year. This means that over 32,000 Brits would have been expected to be alive but died according to the Office for National Statistics. These shocking figures raised a number of important questions about what is happening to the the country's populations, how it's changing and why so many more people are dying. So my listeners will probably have a reasonable guess here. Um, but they go on to explain that in quite a great deal of detail with the stats and everything like that. And you can go and read it for yourself like all the uh, other articles and videos. In the comment section, hopefully wherever you found this. If not, uh, it can be found, I think the comments are in Spotify and Anchor. And I own no copyright to any of the footage. The big section from... The Joe Rogan will be played from Spotify. So I'll be playing I'll just doubling Spotify up. Right, let's see if they have a comment section here. Was it was it the mirror that was did a comment section last week and I was very pleasantly surprised by it. Doesn't look like there is one on that topic. Am I wrong? Was it not the mirror? I can't remember now. Next one up. Do you remember six months ago or I don't know on a previous show at least a couple of months ago where I said the EU and Mark Zuckerberg went into this big um, I think it was the EU some big international government body went into some big let's all have a big meet up on the metaverse and (laughs) (laughs) there were so few people there the ones that did left and the last remaining person there that wasn't you know, staff for want of a better phrase. You know, was the reporter <laughs> who was there to write the article, and uh, so I said, "That's not um, that's not a good start." Well, this is a follow up to that article here. This is from Saturday the thirteenth of May, twenty twenty three. Oh, I should read the the. As by Kieran Williams on the 11th of May was the last article from the mirror. So back to the Guardian now. A moment's silence please for the death of Mark Zuckerberg's Metaverse by John Norton for the Guardian. Meta sank tens of billions into its CEO's virtual reality dream, but what will he do next? Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to to remember the metaverse which was quietly laid to rest a few weeks ago by its grieving adoptive parent one mark zuckerberg those of you with long memories will remember how in october 2021 zuck as he is known to his friends excitedly announced the arrival of his new adoptee to which he had playfully assigned the nickname the future so delighted was he that he had even renamed his family home in her honor henceforth what was formerly called Facebook would be known as Meta. In a presentation at the company's annual conference, Zuckerberg announced the name change and detailed how his child would grow up to be a new version of cyberspace. She will be the successor to the mobile internet. Anyway, let's scroll down this bit to where it's all gone a little bit Pete Tong pear-shaped. right uh, well, At the end of last October, the project had soaked up £36 billion. Dollars, which is about thirty billion pounds, with little to show for it, but an expensive video in which Zuck, who always manages to look like his virtual reality avatar, talked about how good. Uh, that was the Guardian saying that, not me. Uh, <laughs> any lawyers there? well uh, right, let's scroll down. Uh, it's, uh, anyway, it's a it's quite a long-winded article of basically how it's all gone less than Mark Zuckerberg had hoped for. Along with this as well, Disney loses four million subscribers amid exodus in Indian market. Now remember the mainstream media, we've covered articles on this before, how they are losing viewers. And a lot of the articles when they mention it go, Oh, they're going to the streaming sites. Well, they might have come in, but they might have gone out again. But, to be fair, as it says in this one, a lot of it is due to the Indian market. But anyway, I'll read the article. You can listen for yourself. The Thursday, the 11th of May, by Julia Kolioui, Guardian, or Koliou. I've butchered it either way. Lost cricket rights prompts outflow, but streaming service almost halves losses while theme parks boom. Yeah, I think... cricket in India is like football in England or your football if you're from America I think it's like the, the big sport there the national game but sport is not my specialty I could be wrong with that Disney, known for Pixar, Star Wars and Marvel Marvel films, said its flagship streaming service lost 4 million subscribers in the first three months of the year. Subscribers to Disney Plus services, home to movies such as Toy Story, Monsters, Thor and Black Panther, fell to nearly 158 million from January to March, the second quarter of customer losses, after a net loss of 2.4 million in the previous three months. Uh, Yeah, that's subscribers' That's not financial when I say two point eight million, I believe. Because there's, there's no financial sign in front of it. Analysts had expected Disney Plus to add more than 1 million customers in the quarter. The shares fell nearly 5%. In after hours trading. Most of the lost subscribers came from Disney Plus Hotstar in India after the company lost streaming rights to Indian Premier League cricket matches. Disney also lost 300,000 customers in the US and Canada after raising subscription prices in December. The number of UK households subscribing to Disney Plus has steadily increased. Good old UK, rest of the world <laughs> switching off the UK can't get enough of sitting down in front of that box can it has steadily increased in recent. isn't it the same for the uk with something like mcdonald's as well where a lot of the sales are not going so well over the world for mcdonald's but uk i think they're slightly up i think oh, that's for memory go check for yourself and that memory might be out of date by now the number of UK households subscribing to Disney Plus has steadily increased in recent years, climbing to 6.1 million customers in the first quarter. While the industry leader Netflix has nearly 15 million subscribers in the UK, according to the media research firm Ampere Analysis, Disney Plus costs 7, £7.99 a month in the UK, or a yearly fee of £79.90. All major streaming services have been losing customers as the pandemic boom fades and the cost of living crisis hits. British households, that's a, that's a point, isn't it? You would want to compare like for like with in and out of lockdown periods. Are they losing customers but still ahead of the game going into lockdown, for example? At the same time, Disney's streaming business reported a better financial performance. It reduced its operating losses to $659 million, that's 523 million English pounds, from $1.1 billion a year earlier after price increases and reduced spending on marketing. Right then, let's now go to some of our videos here.
1: government has perfected a technological capability that enables us to monitor messages that go through the air. That capability at any time could be turned around on the American people, and no American would have any privacy left, such as the capability to monitor everything. There would be no place to
0: hide. doesn't have to just be Before the U.S.
1: The Senator Church led the Senate Select Committee to study governmental operations with respect to intelligence activities, better known as the Church Committee. The Church Committee's 1976 final report exposed numerous secret federal programs that violated the constitutional rights of American citizens. It deemed these threats, uh, it deemed to be threats to existing social and political order. These programs surveilled and uh, targeted individuals like Martin Luther King Jr. and domestic organizations like the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, as well as infiltrated movements to incite rivalries and discredit leaders. Nearly 50 years later, Senator Church's ominous warning that the government could weaponize technology against the American people reads more like a premonition. There is truly becoming no place to hide. In recent decades, journalists and whistleblowers exposed the examples of our government leveraging emergency techno- emerging technologies to violate the privacy and civil liberties of its citizens. Intelligence agencies conducted surveillance of video game users collecting data on the contents of communications between players. The Department of Homeland Security tracked the locations of individuals and groups participating in the Black Lives Matter movement. The Drug Enforcement uh, Administration conducted covert surveillance of people protesting the death of George Floyd. And it's only getting worse. Just last month, the ACLU acknowledged The Biden administration has been quietly deploying and expanding programs that surveil what people say on social media, using tools that allows agents and analysts to visibly monitor the vast amount of protected speech that occurs online. And how are they doing it? Using artificial intelligence. For years, federal agencies, including the Department of Homeland Security, State Department, National Science Foundation and FBI have been colluding with private organizations and social media companies to combat what they deem to be disinformation. Jacob Siegel in Tablet wrote, disinformation is both the name of the crime and the means to covering it up, a weapon that doubles as a disguise. I think that's an apt way of looking at disinformation. It's a tool for those who want to limit speech, but it also doubles as a disguise and a means of covering up what they're actually trying to do. The purpose, so they claimed, was to combat foreign malign influence. But in reality, the government wasn't suppressing foreign misinformation or disinformation. It was working to censor domestic speech by Americans. Since 2020, the federal government has awarded over 500 contracts and grants related to misinformation or disinformation. George Orwell would be proud. While the grant awardees and their proprietary AI and machine learning technologies differ, their goals are consistent. To mine the internet, identify conversations indicative of harmful narratives, track those threats and develop countermeasures before messages go viral. One National Science Foundation funded company's mission statement claims that social media is being manipulated and ideas are being spread uncontrollably online. The solution it provides? An automatic controversy detection algorithm to help identify things that are potentially opinion shifting in order to make communication more productive and less dangerous. In other words, censorship. During the COVID-19 pandemic, we witnessed accelerated use of artificial intelligence technologies to monitor and suppress public debate on issues like natural immunity, masks, and the origin of the virus. Multiple federal agencies, including DOD and the State Department, funded automated disinformation detection technologies designed to monitor and suppress public debate on issues like vaccine and the origins of COVID-19. Writer Jacob Siegel, in a fantastic yet haunting narrative explaining the last decade of U.S. government domestic censorship efforts, said, disinformation now and for all time is whatever they say it is. That is not a sign that the concept is being misused or corrupted. It is the precise functioning of a totalitarian system. Make no mistake. The United States is engaging in the same activities we criticize other countries for but unlike China and North Korea, the United States government attempts to conceal its involvement using private entities as front companies to do their dirty work, but make no mistake. The intent is the same control the narrative, eliminate dissent, and retain power. This should terrify all Americans. The government is using your hard-earned tax dollars to surveil and censor your protected speech. Artificial intelligence is only going to make it easier for the government to do this and harder to detect. This should not be a partisan issue. We must get to the bottom of how the federal government uses artificial intelligence to violate the privacy and civil liberties of the American people before it's too late.
0: A chilling warning there.
2: Our Let's Go moment's stop.
0: Ah, just just before they said the name of the company handy. So uh, that was the advert after Ron Paul using the words terrified. So quite strong words there from a senator. And that was uploaded on Forbes about ten days ago. Now we're going to listen to Russell Brand. I think he makes some very interesting points here about the idea of are we able to criticise the monarchy are we able to to vote to stop paying for them well no but would would we be able to you know even organise a referendum on that how would that be treated how would that be received how would that be voted for but the whole idea is you know big revolutions have been fought over the idea of no taxation without representation so can we not have the idea of not giving our money to a civil list to fund the royal family if we're unhappy with their activities. My own personal opinion is stop the civil list and let them keep what they got. I mean they've got lots of wealth assets and well income generating land, that kind of stuff. Tax their earnings, let them keep what they've got and uh, if they want to charge to enter any of their, you know, Buckingham palaces or anything like that. If they want to charge to enter anything that the taxpayer paid for, the taxpayer should get half that revenue. So let, let them run it as their own business, like any other business would be. Um, apart from the fact that they got, you know, millions upon millions to, you know, start up their business effectively over centuries. But that would be my view on them. And keep them as, um, keep them as a tourist attraction. So that's that's personally my solution. Give them no more money, let them keep what they've got. You know they're, they're a good tourist attraction that would bring in revenue from other countries so you know just keep them in place, charge them to enter and you know whack it up between the the taxpayer and the business. That's my own personal view. And of course get rid of any powers at all, just a tourist attraction you know no um, version of Butland, you know. There would be (laughs) no say over how the country's run whatsoever. A figurehead, you know. Something to put on uh, a Visit Britain advert, you know. That kind of stuff. Right, so that's my own personal opinion. Here's Russell's.
2: God save the king! But what do you have to destroy in order to save the king? Hmm? (laughs) Hello there, you 6.4 million Awakening Wonders. Thanks for joining us on this voyage to truth and freedom. A truth and freedom that is already within you, waiting to be expressed communally, collectively, and individually, through open discourse, through banning censorship, through demanding free speech, we can have conversations through which we will recognize we have more in common than divides us. Take this subject of the coronation. You might not be an English person, a British person, an Irish person even, and therefore not have strong opinions on this subject. In fact, My opinions on the subject are somewhat ambiguous and ambivalent, but let's have a conversation about the nature of power, the nature of censorship, and are the monarchy a British hot-button topic like pro-life, pro-choice and gun control in your country, America? A subject that's used to divide people. Turn on the notification bell right now and subscribe to our channel. It's the only way we can be sure that we reach you every day with the content we make for you every single day. Remember, we're interested in your opinion. We value what you say. That's why I was particularly offended to see that when the independent newspaper, a British newspaper, I say it's British, but it's significantly owned by Saudi Arabian interests reported on a broadcast we did last week and changed my words saying Russell Brand calls the public stupid, silly when in fact what I'd said was, we must be silly to continue to tolerate this and then presented a bunch of questions Do you know why? My wife likes the royal family, my mother likes the royal family, my mother-in-law likes the royal family, my grandmother, God rest her soul, loved the royal family. British people have it deep in our bones because of the wars, the pageantry, the significant things it represents. Queen Elizabeth II's durability and duty are deeply stitched into the fabric of this country, so I would never be flippant or frivolous, never would I label the public that I am a part of, the community that I belong to, the communities that I grew up in as stupid because it It simply means too much to me. Why then would the independent change the language? And what does that reveal? If you change something where a person says, we must be silly, to you must be silly, that reveals an intention, doesn't it? It means they have an opinion on me, I suppose in particular in this instance, not that I'm suggesting that I'm particularly important, but they are trying to rile a certain group of people. But I'm not alone in thinking that the coronation is perhaps a ceremony that is out of date. In fact, let me know in the comments if you agree with this. I see the coronation of King Charles as similar to the presidency of Joe Biden, unwittingly revealing that an institution is decaying and in need of radical revision. And I also think that the 300 million pounds a year that the royal family cost us is nothing to the 35 billion pounds a year lost through tax evasion. And that the power that the royal family is nothing compared to the power that corporations are able to exert. I think that what we need to address here is power, the nature of power and unconsciousness symbols. Let's have a look at events from the weekend.
3: Now at kickoff, as was the case at every Premier League game, the national anthem was played to mark the coronation of King Charles. And as expected, there were widespread boos and jeers at Amphios. Now, Liverpool fans have been booing the national anthem since at least the 1980s in protest against the est- establishments and its treatment of the city.
2: The treatment of the city they're referring to includes the Hillsborough disaster, where it has been proven that in that instance, the police lied. And the Sun newspaper famously published a headline, The Truth About Liverpool Fans, in which they lied like newspapers regularly and ordinarily do in order to carry their own agenda. Let me know in the chat in the comments if the booing of the Liverpool fans is a kind of indication that the decentralization that we continually talk about on this channel is a necessity. Would the people of Liverpool much rather run their own city and their own principality rather than being somehow tied to a centralized institution, whether that's monarchical or parliamentary? Let me know in the comments. <laughs> Whatever else we learned from that clip, it shows you that a lot of people are querying this coronation. And again, to let you know my nuanced opinion, I don't think the monarchy is the most significant thing when it comes to corruption and lack of power for ordinary people. I just think it's an indication of how these systems function. But if you want to look at the history of the situation, the power of the British monarchy is derived from imperialism and colonialism. In this country recently, we've had a conversation about removing the ships from the Manchester United and Manchester City Badges, well if you want to take the ships out of those badges because of the connections to slavery that that indicates You have to have an honest conversation about the royal family, don't you? Let me know in the chat in the comments
4: There was another procession along the Mall this morning The protesters marched away to the beat of the drum Before the king had even left for the Abbey
2: This comment from Giotti is fantastic This is one of the people that commented on our channel I just finished watching the coronation It made me cry not in a good way, as I watched an elderly man and woman go for a ceremony as old as the country itself and at phenomenally eye-watering expense to crown the oldest person ever to be crowned in the history of Britain and probably the world. It made me think of his mother at her coronation and how young and strong and peachy fresh she was, filling the nation with hope and promise for the future as we recovered and rebuilt the country and the population after World War II. My ineffable sadness was not relieved by the spectacle, the pageantry, and the pomp of it all. It made me think of the poverty-stricken, the homeless, the trapped, the sick, and the disabled, the mentally ill, the orphaned, and the elderly. So people who have affection for the royal family, people that revere Queen Elizabeth II, and you can watch our video on Queen Elizabeth II's passing here, and judge for yourself whether I respect the monarchy and what it represents and the way that it's connected to ordinary British people. But when you hear those Liverpool fans, when you see the poverty in this country, when you see that there's an energy crisis, while energy companies profit, while you see nurses and doctors and teachers striking just a couple of months after it was painting rainbows on the windows, and they're our heroes and protectors tech key workers you have to recognize we are at a time of reckoning and conversation and when you see a newspaper attack someone who's willing to speak out on those subjects it shows you the establishment in this case saudi arabian owned have an agenda let me know what you think in the comments
5: we were arrested for having t-shirts and flags she says officers have been given new powers this week to police protests
2: what sorry oh Oh, that's interesting. You've given the police more power. You're militarising the police. That's happening in America. That's happening in Canada. And all over the world, new bills to censor you on social media and elsewhere, even for information you haven't published, are being passed in what are called the Five Eyes countries, thanks to the revelations of Edward Snowden, a man who's currently in Russia. You have to recognise who your heroes are and who your heroes are not. And they've said they'd have low tolerance
4: for disruptive behaviour.
2: Wow! Low tolerance. Like the royal family, the police are funded by the public. So what kind of dynamic does that suggest? We're going to have low tolerance with you. People that you disagree with should have the right to express themselves. Should they? Let me know in the comments in the chat.
4: The commissioner of the Metropolitan Police said tonight that the force is proud to have led the largest policing operation in decades. Adding, God save the king.
2: So, (laughs) that's extraordinary. So, on one level, you might think that the coronation is frivolous, comparatively not expensive, and generally speaking, is a symbol to bind the country together. And I think that is what it should be. Like the sadness in that comment, it should represent what the Queen did represent to people 50 years ago. But now it seems to represent something different. The ability to impose power, the ability to control dissent, the ability to censor when necessary, the ability to pass anti-protest laws, the ability to direct funding and taxes, towards resources that benefit the elite establishment rather than ordinary people.
3: Good evening, Adriana. It was cold and wet today. The royal family's problems haven't gone away and this country's still suffering through a cost of living crisis. (laughs) You wouldn't know it from the golden carriages. But they managed to crown their
2: king and it's not every day you see that. Thank God we couldn't bloody afford it. And just to show that I'm not against commerce in all of its forms, here's me advertising something from one of our partners that I have to believe to some degree is good for you of Buckingham Palace opened this morning. Gilded gates, golden carriages, horses, this is expensive. But the expense is not really the problem. That expenditure, as we've said, is nothing compared to the corporate power exercised over your government in whatever country you're in, or the tax evasion of powerful corporations. But it is a symbol of where power lies. And it is galling and ridiculous, while there's a crisis around food and energy, to have golden carriages parading through the streets that you're paying for. The heaven
3: opened. But that couldn't stop Charles's march towards his destiny.
2: Well, of course not. They're not going to say we're not going to cancel it because it's raining in England. Although the superstitious and the spiritual among us will say, Oh, the Lord wept upon this day.
3: Through the heart of Westminster in central London, protected by over a thousand members of the British Armed Forces.
2: Oh, that's interesting. A thousand members of the British Armed Forces. So that's some considerable freight behind this meaningless, fun symbol, isn't it? You'll notice that the word serve was used a lot more than the word rule or reign. That because Queen Elizabeth II in her durability, her endurance, her duty, somehow embodied all of our grandmothers and their quiet ability to suck up a couple of world wars and still deliver an omelette has somehow been projected onto this archetypal, symbolic, central family. Now, talking of service has become a kind of bait and switch. We're just serving you. We're just serving serving us what golden carriages that we can look at when half the population are bloody starving and can't keep the lights on. I here present unto you King Charles, your undoubted king. Can't doubt it, can't question it, can't query it. God save King Charles. God save King Charles.
3: And then the oath of office.
2: Your majesty, Will you solemnly promise and swear to govern the peoples of
0: the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland
2: of course, we know the power of the king is largely symbolic, but here are a few interesting facts. British monarchs are worth almost $28 billion. The royal family cost UK taxpayers around £300 million every year. King Charles's private fortune is estimated at $1.8 billion. Charles did not have to pay inheritance tax on his massive wealth he inherited from his late mother, including the Duchy of Lancaster, which brings in around $24 million a year with net assets of around $1.2 billion. I don't even begrudge them all of that. I just, feel it's worth having a conversation about what that represents during a cost of living crisis and that cost of living crisis is brought about by the control and management of resources and our belief that things can't change and shouldn't change. I'm simply offering you this possibility. Things can change. Do you not think that the people of Liverpool will be better off governing their own community? I'm talking about entirely different economic models. I'm talking about in necessary instances arresting technological process where it denies people jobs. I'm talking about about collectivising and localising the control of your own food resources. Grow your own food, control your own energy at the level of cities and principalities democratically. And if you think that's a crazy idea, have another look at this ceremony and we'll talk about what's crazy. The most
3: sacred part of the ceremony is the anointing, a tradition rooted in the Old Testament of the Bible. Screened from view and using holy oil harvested from the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, Charles was anointed on his hands, chest
2: and head. What do you mean people could run their own communities and grow their own food? Cuckoo! Cuckoo! Back to the anointing! What's the anointing? Well, we pour magic oil on the king's head and then you can't pay your gas bill. Could I have some of that magic oil? Freezing!
3: And this time, the ceremony represented a more diverse country than it's ever been before. Today, the coronation included leaders from the Buddhist, Hindu,
2: Jewish, Muslim and Sikh traditions. Look! Look at the progress! Can't you see those people in robes of the state? A variety of skin colours! See? Progress! Now get down to the food bank and get yourself a celebratory feast and warm yourself up on some oil! Could I have some of the anointed oil? No, we need all of it for our diverse ceremony! A symbol of covenant and peace. It's a symbol of how power will shift and manoeuvre in order to continue to control, that there is a willingness to be inclusive culturally. And I would say that is a good thing. It's better than not doing it. That's what I mean by it's a good thing. But it doesn't actually change the lives of many, many ordinary people who cannot afford energy, who cannot afford food, who are funding wars abroad in the same way that colonialism and imperialism was founded. We continue to fund wars through tax dollars in, for example, Ukraine. And it seems like we're agitating for one in Taiwan. This is a new form of colonialism. In terms of global economics, Britain is, I would say, broadly irrelevant. Therefore, all of our institutions in the macro are somewhat irrelevant. But symbolically, what you can read from these ceremonies is that power will maneuver and manipulate, supported by their allies in mainstream media, to keep ordinary people distracted, underserved, ill-informed. Let me know what you think in the chat and the comments. Do you read something from this? I'm not saying that you shouldn't like the monarchy. Of course you do. You've seen them all your life. It's like Disney World. You can criticize Disney World. You go there, you probably have a good time. It's been there all your life on biscuit tins, on your money. If you didn't feel anything about it, you'd be crazy. I'm offering you in a rational, secular society that's not meant to be religious anymore, that's meant to be based on enlightenment values. Is this the best way for British people to spend their resources and to spend their attention or is it being used to destroy Distract us from the fact that whether you voted in our country, Conservative or Labour, you're going to end up with the same sort of deal. Is it being used to distract you from the fact that a couple of years ago there was a massive wealth transfer, loads of businesses got shut down, nurses, teachers and doctors were called heroes and applauded, and now just a couple of years later, they can't get the minuscule rises and decent working conditions that they're willing to go on strike for. You have to look at these things collectively. That's all I'm inviting you to do. Remember, we don't think we're better than you. We learn from you. We care about you. They don't. King Charles
3: waited for this moment for seven decades, the longest apprenticeship in British royal history.
2: Also, a pretty good wage for an apprenticeship, 1.2 billion, 125 million a year. Some people are on £5 an hour. I get an hour off for a sandwich at lunch, plus enough time to pop to the food bank.
3: Today, finally, St. Edward's crown was lowered onto his head.
2: God save the king! He don't even look like he's that into it, does he? He's like a normal person. I actually shook hands with King Charles, as he now must be known once. And this is not a personal attack on individuals and human beings. They didn't ask to be them any more than you asked to be you. I'm simply inviting us to have a conversation about the way that power, wealth, and revenue are distributed and the potential for amending systems in a way that seems to be trying to be born. In the same way that you can witness that these ceremonies and institutions are being held up with incredible effort, uh, uh, 6,000 armed police, uh, uh, you can see from the anger in Liverpool that people want decentralized power and control over their own resources. Let me know in the chat in the comments if you agree. Crafted from
3: 22 carat gold in the 1600s, the crowns trimmed with ermine and festooned with over 40 400 precious stones, including rubies
2: and sapphires. I am very they're impressed by how much gold and sapphires are. Of course they weigh a lot. Should we have a look at where those diamonds and sapphires came from and if there's any connection to colonialism, imperialism, slavery right now on the king's head. The crown's only
3: used for coronations. Charles will likely never wear it again. And there's a price, that's right. <laughs> Queen Camilla was also you know, crowned and anointed today once reviled in this country, Charles's mistress, hated by the public, she's worked hard to improve her image since they wed nearly 20 years ago.
2: What a weird senses worked hard to improve her image, like. The hatred, I think, or the anger or the mistrust is always there and it's kept down by careful management and crushing of dissent. That's why I'm mentioning that the Independent changed what I said in order to attack me, not just because it personally slighted me, although that is part of it because I'm a human being, but also because they, in order to shut down dissent, they'll change what you said to something else so they can attack you and bring down any dissenting voices. Camilla's worked hard, just means there's been an ongoing PR campaign. There's nothing wrong with Camilla. I'm not attacking Camilla. She's an ordinary person. And she deserves to be happy They fell in love They're normal people Nothing wrong with any of that Except for You're paying for it And it's a symbol Of hegemonic power And also a symbol of You cannot change things Things are the way they are The king and queen Left the abbey
3: Dressed in their Purple robes of estate 4,000 military personnel Subtext 4,000 military personnel This is here to
2: stay Or oh, we'll can shoot you.
3: The monarchy as an institution still has
2: overwhelming support in this country. Does it? Take a trip to Anfield, baby. Again, I don't have really a strong opinion. I just have an inquiring mind like you. I just want to understand the truth. And I'm serious when I talk about changing the world. For me, it's not like, yeah, we've really got to change the world in ways that doesn't affect the interests of the powerful. No, you have to look at power. Power is what ordains the way that life is governed. That's what power means. Notably absent
3: from the balcony were Harry and Meghan, as well as the King's disgraced brother, Prince Andrew. Hmm. but the crowds today came to celebrate the monarchy and witness history in the making send him victorious happy and glorious they sang god save the king
2: it is an amazing spectacle it does look incredible it is fascinating history pageantry tradition these are all wonderful things but i feel that they are things that we could access in our own lives and our own community for better value. Again, I don't think that the royal family is the center of the problem. I don't think it's the most significant problem that we're facing right now. I see it primarily as a symbol of intransigence, i.e. things are this way, they must remain this way. Note that New protest laws were introduced simultaneously. Note that around the world, new censorship laws are being lobbied for so that channels for free speech like this one can be shut down, monitored, and controlled. And note even that my modest critiques of the royal family were altered so they became aggressive attacks on ordinary people. Isn't that interesting? Why do you think they want to do that? Because they want to turn us against one another so they can continue to be a Saudi Arabia-funded newspaper with the ridiculous name, The Independent so that during the pandemic we can be told that we're all in this together while the country and the world is torn apart so that doctors and teachers can be marched like lambs to the slaughter into workplaces that may have been unsafe for all we knew at the beginning of the pandemic only to be abandoned when they go on strike for reasonable working paying conditions just a couple of months later. What I'm talking about here is real principles and real values. I know you have them because I learned them from you. I learned them alongside you. I grew up in communities that love the raw. Food family. I went to street parties as a little boy and I've got nothing against those individuals in my own family right now, in my own house, there are people that love the royals. I'm saying that in a democracy people should have open conversations about power. Of course the wealth of the royal family is nothing compared to corporate power in our country, America and all around the world. But symbols of power are part of power and must always be reviewed and scrutinized. But that's just what I think. Why don't you let me know what you think in the chat and the comments? I'm interested in what you believe. Turn on the notification bell and subscribe right now
0: it's the only way you'll see the content so now we're going to go to dr asim holtra talking to joe rogan now i'm playing this from spotify which uh, for me sometimes goes a little bit in and out so nothing i can do about that but uh, fantastic interview i'm joining it um, probably uh, yeah about 50 minutes in uh, so do check out the whole episode for yourself. It's uh, 1979. But let's join it now, about 50 minutes in. A lot of people
5: believe in medicine and think it's an exact science, but it's not an exact science. It's an applied science. It's a science of human beings. It's a social science. It's a constantly evolving science. We're taught in medical school, 50% of what you learn is going to turn out to be either outdated or dead wrong within five years of your graduation. Wow. The trouble is, nobody can tell you which half, so you have to learn to learn on your own.
4: I didn't and you know have that. You stick your neck out because you're going against whatever the narrative you is. You
5: do, but that's, you know, um, ultimately for me, everything I do is motivated by that patient in front of me in the consultation room. You know, that person uh, suffered unnecessarily, who didn't need to be there. Mm. All of these external factors that influence their health, whether it's an ultra-processed food environment, whether it's a pill, taking a pill they don't need. And, um, and, and we see that, you know, we now see that in the world. Um, you know, United States, have, you've lost two years off your life expectancy in the last few years. In the, in the UK, since 2010, Joe, we've had a, a leveling off, a stalling of life expectancy and an increase in people living with chronic disease. So for me as a doctor, I think to myself, hold on a minute, you know, fine, this is multifactorial. But if we as a profession collectively, were doing everything right, according to the best available evidence, why are our patients getting sicker? Don't we have a responsibility to understand why and then do something about it?
4: Yeah, I would imagine you do. So that's, for me,
5: that's, that's, <laughs> that's, what, that's what drives me. Um, and, you know, one of the things I was thinking about as well, if you, I, I've come up with this new term. And it's a derivation of something called commercial determinants of health. Right, so I like this definition. Commercial determinants of health are this: strategies and approaches adopted by the private sector to promote products, products and choices that are detrimental to health. Right, and that can apply to, to medications. It can apply to ultra processed food, which is addictive for a lot of people. Right, um, but what I've come up with when you think about the drug industry and what Dr. Robert Hare talks about psychopathic is something called the psychopathic determinants of health, and you know, uh, Richard Horton, who's the editor of the Lancet, actually came to a, one of my lectures in London recently, and then he referenced me talking about this in one of his pieces. It wasn't a completely positive piece on me, I'll be honest It was a little bit of a subtle hatchet job. Um, but he talked about, you know, Malhotra talks about the psychopathic determinants of health. If you think conceptually, Joe, we talk about these very powerful entities that have a big influence on our lives. And if they are psychopathic, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that's going to have a downstream effect on society that's going to be negative culturally you know people staying silent when they should be speaking up um, you know I, I've been contacted by doctors who agree with me privately but say I wouldn't say that or uh, and uh, and this is this is what we're, what we're having to deal with now and this is they've, ha- they've got more power than they've ever had I think Joe over our lives and influence and uh, if a psychopathic entity has so much power and control over our lives Of course, it's going to be negative and we need to basically fight back.
4: So this sort of established your hesitancy to just believe whatever the narrative that's being described by the, the industry, by the medical industry. So you had questions now coming into COVID, did you have those initial fears Or questions about the vaccine? At the very
5: beginning, I had a little bit of skepticism about the efficacy of the vaccine, because we know traditionally vaccines for respiratory viruses like influenza are not that great. But I didn't. So with all of this knowledge and background knowledge, I honestly treated vaccines or the word vaccine like holy grail despite all of this stuff around overmedicated population, all these pills people are taking, whether it's blood pressure pills they don't need or statins or even diabetes drugs that don't have much benefit for them um, and come with side effects. For me, still within all of that, vaccines are amongst the safest. So I never conceived of the possibility at all, actually, of a vaccine doing any harm. Even
4: knowing that this is a completely different vaccine that, that has, nothing's ever been distributed like this yeah. with these numbers.
5: So, so I know that now. But at the time, you know, I hadn't focused my attention specifically on on the vaccines at all. So you're, you're, what you're saying makes sense. But at the very beginning, you know, um, I, I, was, I, I deferred to vaccine specialists and immunologists and people I thought that, you know, didn't probably have conflicts who were all saying this is fine. So I hadn't looked at it in that much detail. And I just made the presumption that this was going to be safe. Don't know how effective it was going to be, but it was going to be safe. And as a result, um, and some of it was also... You know, so during the COVID pandemic, uh, I was very outspoken making the link between obesity and poor COVID outcomes. Uh, In fact, to the point where, you know, I was getting pretty mad that there wasn't enough coverage on this. Like we've got this pandemic that affects, you know, disproportionately affects the elderly. There's no doubt about it. At the very beginning, it was particularly devastating for older people. But there was like a thousand fold gradient difference in risk if you were young versus old, like even now, even early on, you know, John IDs, Jay Bhattacharya, they did these analysis essentially suggesting that for younger people, it was actually less lethal than the flu. But for older people, very old people, it was, it was, it was quite bad at the beginning. So I, I noticed this link with obesity and I said, listen, you know, this is my work over many years. One of the things that I also advocate for is that for people to understand that if you change your diet just within a few weeks, depending where you're starting from, you can potentially even send your type two diabetes into remission you can reverse the most important risk factors for heart disease. So I knew that if, if people were told that when this, when this virus was, you know, when the pandemic started, this was an opportunity. Actually, we already had this slow pandemic of chronic disease, which we hadn't effectively curbed anyway. This is a great opportunity for government to say, listen, guys, now it's, this is a time to sort your diet out, take vitamin D, you know, really just optimize your immune system. And it wasn't happening. So, but in all of that, I looked at all of the risk as well. And, um, it was clear that this was, you know, not very risky for people who were my age, you know, um, 20, I'm 45 now. So what I was, what, 43, uh, you know, 42, 43 when, when the whole vaccine rollout started my father, who was a, um, retired general practitioner, but vice president of the British medical association, very prominent doctor in the UK. Um, he, and, and this gets into the emotional side a little bit, because, you know, I think this, th- this is, uh, is relevant. Um, he was very keen that I take the vaccine. And I think it was because he had an exaggerated fear for me, right? Like many people had. Um, we'd lost our mother just a few years earlier. I lost my brother when I was young. So I was his only surviving immediate me- family member. And he had this, and he was saying, You need to take the vaccine. No, please, please, please. I was like, Dad, you know, I don't really need it. You know, no, 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 take it, take it. This went back and forth and said, Okay, fine. I'll I'll have it. But I I thought, anyway, as a doctor, I'm going to take it. I'm going to protect my patients. You know, let's see what happens. So I took the vaccine. And then about a month later, a film director, friend of mine, Gurinder Chadha, you might be familiar with some of her work, um, Bend It Like Beckham. It's a movie she did. Blinded by the Light, which is about Bruce Springsteen. it did quite well over here. So she was sending me all this stuff, saying, I see him and watch about the vaccine. And it was kind of blogs and it was stuff saying like, you know, microchips, depopulation agenda, fertility problems. I said, Grind to be honest, I was polite. I said, I don't think there's any real good evidence here. I think this is scaremongering. And I said, you know, I think you're high risk. You're type 2 diabetic, you're overweight, et cetera. I think you should have it. So she said, great. You know, she trusts me. So she took the vaccine and then she tweeted it out. And the next thing, I'm on Good Morning Britain in February 2021, asked to tackle vaccine hesitancy, which was higher amongst people from ethnic minority backgrounds. So I think it's probably similar in the States as well. Mm one of the reasons for that as well, by the way, Joe, is that a lot of people from the those, those backgrounds are from poorer backgrounds. And um, understandably, they have less trust in government. You know, they're the neglected people in society in many ways. So you can see why they felt that way. And I went on Good Morning Britain. I didn't point fingers and said, oh my God, these people are crazy, whatever else. I said, listen, let's understand that there are rational reasons why people don't want to take the vaccine. Look at the history of the drug industry for the last several decades and the amount of fraud I, I think they were not expecting me to say this right. I said think about all the fraud they've committed um, I understand that but I said having said that when you look at traditional vaccines they're some of the safest and that's kind of pretty much where I left it at a time Joe when we were only in the UK uh, at that point there was only the recommendation for the vaccine to be given to people at high risk I never expect even then like friends were calling me and younger people I said no you don't need to take it if you're under 50 you're fit and healthy no no even at that time but this is just for high risk people so I took it uh, I swallowed the pill and, um, and then, yeah, I mean, things changed very dramatically within a few months.
4: Did you have <laughs> any adverse side effects?
5: I did. I did. Um, and again, I didn't fully appreciate it at the time, but now I know the mechanism of harm. Uh, it makes sense. So I actually within, so I'm very much into my fitness, Joe. I've been like, you know, I captain sports teams at school, and university. I'm an obsessive exerciser like every day. You know, I don't feel good if I haven't gone to the gym and done something, you know, almost every day. I started noticing within a a few weeks that my energy level started to get depleted quite significantly. My sleep was disturbed. And and then I went into clinical depression. I was diagnosed with clinical depression. Um,
4: Didn't take any pills. It was probably mild to moderate over a few months. Um, So when you say diagnosed with clinical depression, what's the parameters? Like, how is that defined?
5: Yeah. So, uh, in, so clinical depression, th- you usually have to have a number of symptoms that are persistent for at least two weeks. So these are things like something called early morning wakening, low mood, you know, lack of energy, um, uh, negative thoughts for the future. There's lots of different criteria. And one of my, one of my family friends actually is a psychiatrist. Um, and I spoke to him about it and, you know, he said, yeah, yeah, this is, this is depression. So, yeah. So I, but the one thing I noticed more than anything else is my energy levels were, I, I couldn't, like, I'm a very active, energetic guy and I just couldn't leave the house. I didn't, I couldn't leave the couch. I was completely depleted.
4: And what do you think, co- like you, you believe is a side effect of the vaccine, but what, is, what's the mechanism?
5: Well, we know now one of the problems of the vaccine is that the spike protein, and there's different theories around this from the vaccine that's injected into the arm gets distributed throughout the body and can be there for up to four months. Um, uh, and what happens is it causes either direct and there's published data on this, a direct toxic effect to the tissues or an autoimmune reaction. So we're talking about the brain, the heart, the kidneys, the liver, the ovaries and the testes. And that's probably the mechanism of action. And in fact, this is not, you know, um, Interestingly, you know, one of the side effects from a World Health Organization endorsed list, which I reference in my peer-reviewed paper, which we'll talk about later, actually puts in there psychosis (laughs) as one of the side effects of the vaccine. And there are case reports and people who went psychotic, actually, because of it. So a significant number. um, Well, we don't know. We don't know the exact numbers, but. One of the, the reanalysis of Pfizer's own trial by independent researchers published in Journal Vaccine, one of this in the clinical trial itself, one of the severe adverse effects w- in the clinical trial was psychosis,
4: at least in one patient. So for you with your case, how long did you suffer from these symptoms?
5: About three months. I mean, I, I, I went to, um, I went to a psychologist. I had cognitive, I didn't want to take pills. So I went to psychologists, I, I, I had cognitive behavioral therapy, I started to just focus on going back to the basics, getting good sleep, resting, etc. And I came out of it, you know, I came out of it slowly, I started getting my energy levels back, it took about three months, three to four months.
4: Did you experience any cardiology issues? Was there there anything with your heart rate? Was there anything with your immune system?
5: No, no, no I didn't, Joe, I had two doses, I didn't get any of that stuff. No, I didn't. Um, uh, but then what happened was just when I'm coming out of the clinical depression, I'm starting to feel better. And I told my dad about it. You know, my dad was, you know, uh, we, we were very, very close. So he knew everything that was happening. Um, you know, one of the things, by the way, uh, one of the, you know, when people are going to clinical depression, one of the symptoms is suicidal ideation as in thoughts about committing suicide. That's actually one of the symptoms. And I remember going for a walk with him. I was feeling so low. And, uh, you know, I went up to visit him in Manchester and I just said to him, I said, yeah, I, you know, I, I'm having a thought of just, you know, going and um, jumping in front of a car. Sure. Was, it, was, it was fleeting. I wasn't going to do it. But right. that, that I knew that I was that depressed that I was even, to have even that thought entering your mind. But anyway, I, you know, I'm a resilient, tough guy. I just, I just wrote, I knew I was going to get better. I just had hope and I got better slowly with time. And when I came out of it, that's when, you know, a, a real sort of tragedy hit me again. Um, because uh, me and my dad were still also mourning the loss of my mum. It only been about two and a half years since my mum died. Um, and, uh, I, I get a, it was, I'll never forget this July, the 26th, 5 PM, 2021. My dad calls me and he says, "It seem I've got chest discomfort and in medicine, 80% of your, if you're a good doctor, 80% of your diagnosis comes from the history. If you listen to your patient, then you will get the diagnosis just from that discussion. Uh, if you know, you know from symptoms, you know, you can usually and he said and he, what he described sounded cardiac Which is typically he said it seemed I said, he's a doctor, but he was obviously a little bit concerned I said tell me about it. He said I said how bad is it out of ten? He said like six out of ten feeling a bit sweaty I've got an ache in the center of my chest. I said is it going anywhere? I said yeah into both shoulders and for me I was like okay it didn't sound like an over massive heart attack, but it was concerning I said how long have you had it for he said I've had it for probably at least 20 to 30 minutes I said okay I said, Dad, you need to call an ambulance now. I don't want to scare him. I said, you need an ECG straight away, right? You need an EKG to see whether this is an acute heart attack, but you need to call an ambulance. And he was reluctant. Um, you know, I don't know why. The NHS was under pressure. He didn't want to just he thought, you know, he thought that maybe he was, you know, it was nothing major. And I said, no, listen, I don't hopefully it's nothing major, but you need an ECG, you need to call an ambulance 99. And he didn't want to do it. So it was a back and forth conversation. I called one of his best friends who lives near him. He was a doctor as well. I said, listen, you need to go and see dad. And he was busy with something, but he said, listen, I'll call him. And in the end, what he did was he called um, two of his neighbors, who are both doctors, who happened to be home. I think they'd finished work. And uh, so I get in the shower. I said, listen, I'm going to get on the train and come up. I get in the shower, come out of the shower. Um, I call him back, you know, because I was about to, I was just changing, getting ready to get on the train. And there's no answer. I keep calling, no answer. Then one of uh, his neighbors, a doctor, she answered the phone and she's hysterical. And she says, Asim, your father's had a cardiac arrest and we're doing CPR. Now, I went into kind of cardiology, tried to take control of the situation, be as calm as possible mode. And I said, Tell me what happened. Said, Well, we walked in, we saw him, he was a little bit sweaty. My husband, his husband's anesthetist, he was there. He'd already called an ambulance, you know, uh, called 999, and was on the phone. And while he's on the phone to the ambulance, my dad just keels over. Now, Joe, I've done a lot of work and even published on out-of-hospital cardiac arrests and what determines survival. And if you are going to have a cardiac arrest, (laughs) if you are unlucky enough to have it, you are super lucky if it's witnessed by two doctors who are going to do CPR and an ambulance has already been called. And we know the ambulance response times in the UK have, and I've published on this stuff, is almost within eight to 10 minutes in these sorts of calls, they will be there. And your chances of survival are high in that situation, right? You've got CPRs witnessed, and they usually get a defibrillator on you within 10 minutes. You've got probably more than a 50% chance of surviving. Ambulance didn't show for 30 minutes. And I remember just FaceTiming, them and they put the cardiac monitor on. It was a flat line. And I said, there's nothing to do here. Don't you You know, they carried on. I said, no, just stop. You know, I've led cardiac arrest teams. So I know there's no point just jumping on his chest. Now there's nothing that we can do here. Uh, And, and it was, it was shocking beyond belief. I couldn't, I couldn't understand it. My dad was a very fit 73 year old, you know, he would, I mean, I consider myself quite athletic, you know, and he would outwalk me when we were going for walks during lockdown. He was very active mentally. He was on TV talking about lockdowns and whatever else. And um, it didn't make any sense. So I two things happened. First and foremost, I organized a post-mortem. But they then also investigated, like, how has this happened? Why has it happened? It's taking 30 minutes to, to, to get there. And this links back to some of my earlier work in terms of speaking out, of you like being a whistleblower. So I get contacted about two weeks later because I tweeted it out, you know, my dad was a well-known doctor. It was big news story in the Guardian, you know, the mayor of Manchester who was friends with him. I mean, my dad was a wonderful human, said, you know, we've lost one of the kindest souls to ever walk the earth. I mean, he was that kind of human. He was that well-loved and liked by people. And um, I, I got a phone call from somebody senior in the health department, linked to the government, called NHS England. And she was crying. She was a nurse, senior nurse, and she knew my dad. And she said, it seems something I've got to tell you. I said, what is it? She says, the Department of Health, the government, had known for at least for several weeks throughout the whole country that um, ambulances were not getting anywhere close to their targets for treating people for heart attacks or cardiac arrest, but had made a decision to deliberately withhold that information. And for me, that that was... um, that was quite upsetting because if I had known that, if we had known that, I wouldn't have asked him to call an ambulance. You know, the neighbors could have, the, the nearest hospital was like a five minute drive, Joe. They would have, you know, he would have, somebody would have taken him there. Even if he had a cardiac arrest en route, they would have been able to get to defibrillator and he probably would have survived. So I thought this is, you know, I need to do something about this. People need to know, because it was still kept hidden. So I, I, with a, a journalist in the, in the UK called Paul Gallagher with the eye, I've done a lot of work with him, great journalist. He then started doing freedom of information requests, getting information from the ambulance service, trying to find out what happened, et cetera, et cetera. And we determined that this was the case, that there was all these delays and it had been going for a long time. And then I wrote an article in the I newspaper. It became a BBC news story. But just before I published it, I contacted a cardiologist who I consider to be one of the good guys, Joe. And again, I won't name him. I think it's unfair to name him. And I said, Prof, I call him Prof. I said, I just want you to know this is what's happened, happening. You should be aware of this. Um, and I'm going to, you know, get it out to the public. People need to know. You know, this is a big problem because it, it it might change things a little bit. It's not, but at least we highlight the problem and try and find solutions. And people, then in these similar situations, one of the interesting things is this nurse that called me said to me that two weeks earlier, her own husband was playing soccer and came back from soccer with chest pain. She didn't even bother calling the ambulance. This is before my dad had his cardiac arrest because she knew it wasn't going to get there. She got him in the car, drove down the, the highway, the freeway, to the nearest hospital, into the accident emergency department, and they diagnosed an acute heart attack and took him for emergency keyhole heart surgery. You know, so, so she knew this stuff and did, didn't you know obviously call an ambulance. So I, I told this to this professor of cardiology in a text message. And you know what he replied to me? Asim, I wouldn't publicize this if I were you you're only going to make yourself enemies and I want to do whatever I can to help you get a job back in the NHS, right? Because by this stage I wasn't working, work in the NHS, I was only doing private care. And I said, prof, what about our duty to the public and to patients? No answer. Why am I telling you this, Joe? Remember earlier on I talked about the so-called psychopathic determinants of health. Yes. There is a cultural problem in our profession where people are afraid to speak out. For their patients uh, even if it's something that's important and true. So what does medicine become when doctors can't even speak the truth? But I didn't care for me. This was more important than anything So I got this out and it became a new story and I was interviewed by the BBC and it was a big You know and then and after that all these stories start coming out, you know, I made the so-called injustice visible through the mainstream Um, But it still bugged me You know, how did my dad have a cardiac arrest? So his post-mortem finding came findings came back and he, two of his three major arteries were severely narrowed, right? Critically narrowed, 90% in what we call the left anterior descending artery, the most important artery to the heart, and the right coronary artery. And I thought, this is weird. I knew my dad's lifestyle inside out. I knew his cardiac history inside out. There was no cardiac history. He had something called a calcium score done a few years earlier. He had blood flow to his arteries were all normal. This is a guy that only two years earlier on a badminton, I was Manchester champion, school's champion in badminton, Right singles badminton I don't you ever played it but it's a very it's like playing basketball for your cardiovascular system it's really heavy and for the first time in god knows um probably about 30 years he had, he beat me in the first game 15-1 and i was like my god how's my dad beating me here you know we were very competitive with each other i mean it was we played for an hour and at the end, almost at the end of the hour joe i got back in it was like tied i ruptured my achilles right? It was that bad. And I was about to tweet and just share, it's like, I'm really proud of my 73-year-old dad. He literally almost beat me in badminton, right? He was that fit. So it didn't make any sense. So, severe narrowings, and I'm just, okay, what was it? Was he really stressed? You know, stress, by the way, severe psychological stress can, can, can cause these sorts of issues with the heart, but it, again, didn't, didn't, didn't buy it. And then, October, November, 2021, I get alerted from a cardiologist friend of mine who, who's one of the smartest cardiologists in the country. I think. I mean, he's a brilliant mind, and he sends me an abstract from uh, Circulation, cardiology journal, done by Stephen Gundry, who's a cardiothoracic surgeon. I think based in New York. And I read this abstract, and I'm like, wow. And what he found was in he'd been following up several hundred people in their fifties with um, a test that he does called the pulse score, which correlates the blood test and it measures markers of inflammation in the blood, Joe, which have been validated and correlated with heart disease risk and heart attack risk. And what he found was that within eight, 10 weeks of these patients taking the Moderna or Pfizer vaccine, mRNA vaccines, those markers of inflammation in the blood had increased to a level where their risk of a heart attack went from 11% at five years just within two months to 25%, which is a huge jump. Like to give it context, if I today decided I was going to smoke 40 cigarettes a day, eat junk food, you know, hammer it all night, not sleep. Um, stop exercising. I couldn't even get it close to increasing my risk that much in two months. Now it's one bit of data. And of course in medicine, which, I, which we've talked about is not an exact science. You never rely just on one bit of data. You look at other bits of data as well, and, and what kind of picture does all the information start painting? So at that point, I was like, okay, now I can understand. There's something now that fits with what happened to my dad. But if this is real, this is going to be a problem, because I know you're essentially, for populations of people who may not know they've got a little bit of mild furring that isn't going to cause them a problem for 20 years, suddenly you're going to get an increase in heart attacks much more.
0: So I think that's pretty telling. The Vax, or at least that one study that he seems to be referencing, go and, you know, read it for yourself. What he seems to say is that Vax is way more bad for you over a couple of months than uh, a terrible lifestyle choices. So uh, not even close, apparently. So that'll be interesting. I don't know if anyone knows anything more about that study. Thanks very much for listening here today. Hopefully you'll do so again next week. Cheers.